0: You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. You would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of 2 Timothy this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3, and the scripture reading will be verses 1 through 17. 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 through 17. And let's stand as one people. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far, because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. Faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings, what kind of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. This is God's word. You may be seated. The Results of the 2018 State of Theology Survey from the United Kingdom is in. And you may wonder, well, why should I care? But there are some interesting statistics that have come out of this survey done by Ligonier Ministries, a Christian ministry. And they looked and polled people in the United Kingdom who would classify themselves as evangelicals. In other words, uh, the people who responded to this said that they understood the Bible is God's word, that Jesus died for their sins, and that Jesus is the only way for sin to be forgiven and for them to be able to go to heaven. So in that category, here are some of the things that those who said they are evangelicals believe. 74% believe that Jesus was created by God. Now, if you know your church history right away, you should know that that is a heresy that was condemned by the church back in the second and third century. But here you have 75% of those who would say they're evangelicals believe that Jesus was created by God. 55% over half believe that the Holy Spirit is a force, not a personal being. Uh, So he's some kind of presence in your life, but he's not a personal being. And then 28% agree that the Bible is a sacred book, but they also feel that it contains ancient myths and is not literally true. Now, those are just a few of the findings, but right away that should send up some alerts to us that there is great confusion and ignorance and misunderstanding as to what is the Christian faith in the United Kingdom. But the question will probably come up and you're thinking, what does that have to do with New England? What does it have to do with people who are like yourselves or finding themselves sitting in church this morning? Well, if you're aware of trends, typically the secularism that has gripped the United Kingdom is often a few years ahead of where we're headed. And so as you listen to those statistics, as you come back to us to say, that is troubling, not just for the United Kingdom, it should be troubling for us. Is there much confusion and ignorance, even among those who would say they're churchgoers as to what the Christian faith is? That brings us to unpacking part of our theme verse for this year, and that is a commitment to be doing what is good. And so we're going to spend some time over the course of the next few weeks into probably February, looking at what are some of these good things that as the body of Christ, as individual believers, we should be good at, we should be devoted to. And the first one we looked at two weeks ago was worship. We should know what worship is and how to worship, because we have Christ's Spirit in us. But this morning, we're going to look at another aspect of doing good, and that is we should be a people who know what the Bible teaches and follow it. That is a part of what it means to commit to doing good, that we know what the Bible teaches, and we're committed to following it. So I direct your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and here we have another of Paul's pastoral epistles. So 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus are pastoral epistles. They're not written to a specific church. They're written to an individual leader. And so Paul is writing to Timothy to help better equip Timothy for the work of serving God in the church at Ephesus, where Timothy is a pastor, an elder, a leader. And so what kind of advice, what counsel does he give to Timothy that doesn't just relate to church leaders, but is relevant to all of us who just want to know and be devoted to the one book that we should know best of all? So look at at verse one. Verse one of chapter three begins and says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. We know that this is Paul's final letter in the New Testament. He is in prison once again. Uh, He's awaiting a verdict from the Roman Emperor Nero uh, and anticipating as you get closer to the end of this letter um, that the verdict will be that Paul will be sentenced to death. Uh, So these are his last words, very important words. And he begins by reminding Timothy to look at the results of biblical illiteracy. In other words, open our eyes and, and look around us to, to what does it look like when you don't know the Bible or you deliberately reject the Bible and walk away from it? But what does it look like? And so as we glance at that description, notice in verse one, it said, mark this. Uh, literally, this is important. This is urgent. And there's a tendency sometimes for us to just simply write off the world as being sinful or evil or to turn our eyes away from it because we're just tired of bad news. But but there's a very important part that we need to look directly at the situation, to look at our culture and to assess our surroundings. And so Paul says, Timothy, I I want you to assess what's around you. And so you see he does that as he continues and says, mark this, these will be terrible times, uh, stressful, challenging. Now, you want to make sure you don't lift that verse out of this context. Paul is not going to say to Timothy, what's the use? Just pray that Christ returns because it's just overwhelming. But now Timothy maintains, as well as Paul, a very optimistic attitude here that we are to fight the good fight. We are to persevere in the faith because Christ has already guaranteed the victory. But mark this, pay attention to this, Timothy. These will be challenging times, as well as the fact that he says, in the last days. We need to understand the broadness of that term in this context. We're living between the time of Christ's ascension and Christ's return. So it is just as accurate for Paul to tell Timothy This is what the last days look like, as it is for us to say, we are living in the last days. We're living in that time between. So what does that time look like? What does it look like when the clarity of Scripture is no longer taught? When the teaching of the Bible becomes a secondary priority of the church? Well, you have it written for us here as it goes on. Notice for a moment verses 12 and 13 of chapter 3. There to give you a, a broader brushstroke of the times. It says, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil men and imposters go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And you kind of want to say, was Paul listening to the news Has Paul been reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times? Because isn't that what we see often today? Those who are evil seem to prosper. They seem to advance, whereas we might look and say sometimes, you know, the, the church that's teaching the word of God seems to be on the fringes. And those churches that have tried to move further away from Scripture seem to be the ones that at least numerically are growing. Are appealing to people? Is, is that the path that we should take? Paul says, don't be surprised that what you will see is the difficulty of following Christ and visually will look like the exact opposite is what is most profitable and advantageous. But Let's take a closer look at this description. It's quite lengthy in verses two through nine. Paul will talk about the nature of humanity. Uh, In other words, if we're going to assess our surroundings, we need to be clear on what is the nature of humanity? What is is in man's heart? What is he genuinely like? And so he goes through a list of both characteristics and attitudes and behaviors to illustrate this. And what's very fascinating is if you look at verses 2 through 5, There are a total of 17 adjectives describing the character of man in these last days. And and as you read them, you should be thinking, can I kind of check these off? Like, do I see examples of this? Now, we realize that there are people in our world today who don't know Christ, who are friendly people. They're helpful, they're pleasant. And the only reason that is because of common grace. They were created in the image of God does not mean they're righteous before him, does not mean they're a Christian or saved just because they're friendly. It's just the fact that we are stamped with the image of God. And in spite of our sinfulness, there is still that evidence and reflection of God's character. But when we peel that away and look genuinely at the core, you notice in this description, it begins and ends with two opposite pictures of love. So if you look at verse two, it begins with people will be lovers of themselves. And then go down to verse four, and it says they will be treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Two bookends to say, you, you wanna summarize what man's character is, he will be a lover of himself and they will be a lover of pleasure. So I toss this question out. If you look around our world today, you look at our culture, are we a hedonistic and narcissistic culture? Are we a culture that looks at ourselves and idolizes ourselves, which is narcissism? How can you escape the reality of that when you think of the appeal of selfies Instagram, other platforms where it's all about, look at what's going on in my life. Comment on the things I like. It's all about me. But are we also a culture that is hedonistic, pleasure-seeking? We seek comfort. And I think we've seen this sadly make its way not just into the church in general at times, But how about even into our own Christian lives where somehow we have swallowed the lie that God wants you as a Christian to be happy. Where was that ever found in scripture? That we are be joyful in him, but I don't see references to being happy. I see references to wanting us to be Christ-like. I see references to him wanting to root out sin in our life, but not happy. That's our culture. Promotes be happy, be true to yourself. But as you read this description, you see, Paul is saying there's a fatal flaw to that reasoning to be true to yourself when your inner core is sinful. What will that lead to? This exact list of characteristics that he puts before Timothy. So he says, Timothy, look, look at your surroundings, look at the results of biblical illiteracy. But then when you glance at verses six through nine, Paul brings this even closer to home for Timothy and is referencing some of the situations going on in Ephesus that that Timothy is directly having to deal with. In other words, those who are promoting, not scripture, but a false teaching. And so notice in verse six, He says, they are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning, but never able to acknowledge the truth. Now, it's important as you get to verse six, Paul's referencing some of the inroads these false teachers have made. And in this particular setting, they appeal to be quite successful to certain women in their teaching. Now, this is a, not a general sweeping statement Paul is saying. So when he says weak-willed women, don't think that Paul's making a sexist comment about all women. The, the phrase itself means childish, indicating a lack of spiritual maturity. So this false teaching is making inroads upon those who who really are not well-grounded scripturally, and therefore they are susceptible to these lies. And so notice today we have a lot of people who will promote and say that they are spiritual, not religious. Now it's great that there's some kind of interest beyond just the material world, but we quickly can see where can that take you? It can take you in every direction, but, back to the scriptures. And so Paul is illustrating to Timothy, you you know what I'm talking about here? This problem, not just of biblical illiteracy, but of great confusion and spiritual blindness. But then you go to verse eight, and he mentions Jannes and Jambres. And he says, just as Jannes and Jambres oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth men of depraved minds who as far as the faith is concerned are rejected. So if you were concerned that while Paul seems to be zeroing in on women in verse 6, equal opportunity Paul, he's saying there's men who are are just as lost, who are just as sucked up into false teaching as some women can be. Jannies and Jambres are are two names he associates with Moses. Uh, Most commentaries would tell you That these are probably some of Pharaoh's Egyptians who kind of mimicked the initial miracles that Moses uh, and Aaron performed before Pharaoh. Uh, The names do not appear in the Bible, but they do appear in some Jewish writings. So what Paul is doing is he's laying the groundwork to say, Timothy, um, I'm not talking about what's going on outside of your neighborhood, outside of your life. I'm talking about what's happening right where you are. And I think that's why it's beneficial for us to look at this passage and say, this is the world that we live in. It's it's not the world that's down the road that maybe your grandchildren will have to deal with. It's the world that God has placed us in for this very time and for this very reason. And you can trace it all back to walking away from God, from going off into other directions rather than knowing what is in the book, and then obeying what is said there. So verse five and verse nine provide two conclusions. Timothy, open your eyes. This is what the culture of the world is like. What do you do? Well, notice verse five says, having a form of godliness, but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. That's a strong phrase, Uh, turn away from them. Don't don't associate with them. Now, he clearly is not telling Timothy, don't bring the gospel to them, but, but don't bring them or facilitate their work in the church. So we cannot control what's being taught out there. We can put clear guidelines, and we should as a church, to what's being taught in our church, what's being taught in the men's and ladies' Bible studies and anything we do. Is it Christ-centered? Is it grounded in the scriptures? Are all of us being encouraged to think and examine these things for ourselves? Not, Not to just take what we're told, but to search the scriptures and study them. So we should be students not just of scripture, which is very clear as we go through this passage, but we should be students of human nature. We should think about what is the nature of men and women? And what does that tell us about the urgency there is and the work that God wants us to do in Christ Jesus? So one conclusion at least to open your eyes and see this is make sure you turn away from that. You're not immune if you're not careful to being caught off guard and believing something that the scriptures don't teach. But then you notice in verse 9, there's another conclusion. But they will not get very far. Because as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Uh, it would be easy to read this description and be overwhelmed. To go home, want to lock your doors, lock your windows, not go out, and just pray that Christ would come back before the week starts. But Paul says, Timothy, remember God's word and God always win. Where is Jambres and Jannie's now? Is God still on the throne? Has his word been proven true over and over again? As we sung this morning, standing on your promises, how many centuries have proved the veracity of that hymn? How many times in your own life have you seen those promises? Been strong, firm, and steadfast. A number of years ago, I had a, a student who in one of our class discussions, we were talking about the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche was on Time magazine as the man of the year back in the 60s for his God is dead philosophy and what he taught. And Nietzsche's famous comment was God is dead. Well, he gave me a mug that says on one side, God is dead, Nietzsche. Turn it around, the other side says Nietzsche is dead, God. What a reminder, who, who always wins, whose word is always proven true. So this is now to encourage Timothy, because Paul goes on now in the second half of chapter three to say, Timothy, you must invest in learning and applying God's word. You must continue to invest in learning and applying God's word. And so notice verse 12, the stark reality of everything. It says, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Spoiler alert, to live a godly life and ungodly world will be difficult. It will not be easy. Don't think it should be easy. God never said it would be easy. But here's where we come now to the scriptures. What do we find in the scriptures that enable us to do that. And so you notice in verse 11, to be continually growing and applying scripture, you must have a realize that a knowledge and understanding of scripture is a lifelong task. Uh, we hear the phrase a lot today, lifelong learners. And that's great, but we should feel that way about scripture. No matter how long we've known the Lord, that we have so much more to learn, that we need to invest time and energy into it. But notice in verse 11, Paul talks about his persecutions and trials. But let me back up to verse 10. You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. There's something about the fact that scripture must not just be read and heard. It must be seen. And so Paul says, Timothy, first of all, you you know my teaching. You've partnered with me in ministry. You've seen my letters. You know my theology. And you know it always can be traced back to God's word. But then Paul moves from that, and he'll come back to that. But he talks about other aspects of his life. In other words, Timothy, you know the reality of God's word, the, the power it has because you have seen me. You know me. You've watched me. And I love what he lists there. You know my way of life, my conduct. If you really want to know what someone is like, isn't spending time with them, seeing what they're like? I remember one Christian marriage counselor saying uh, he wishes he could say to every potential couple who's considering marriage, The first thing you need to do is see each other, what you're like in the morning when you have a bad cold. In other words, he was saying, we need to see and you understand who someone is. When you see them, not just at their best, but at their lowest. And Paul says, Timothy, you've seen my conduct. But then he goes on and says, you've not just seen my conduct, you know my purpose. You, You know my aim in life, in ministry. You're aware of my faith my confidence in Christ. You're aware of my patience, my love, my endurance. And oh yeah, you also know about my persecutions. Now it's very interesting. The examples he cites, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, were were not experiences where Timothy was with Paul. But he cites experiences that Timothy would have heard about and been aware of. And in fact, that may even be heightened by the fact that each of those three areas is in the vicinity of where Timothy was from. So Timothy, you know, you have seen me when everything is going well in my life in Christ. And you've also seen me when everything in my life has been one giant trial. Now, Paul's not parading here that, you know, I'm perfect. He's saying, no, but you've seen that my faith in Christ is genuine. And isn't that one of the reasons Why it's important to fellowship together? Because we see the Bible being lived out. You could easily stay home, hop online, and listen to some well-known preacher or theologian of the past deliver a sermon. You would hear God's Word. And because it's God's Word, I don't question in some way you will be blessed and benefited if you listen to it in the right heart attitude. But is that the same thing? As being together, hearing it in front of one another, responding to it, singing the truthfulness of Scripture, that's very different. And not just do we as Christians need to see God's Word lived out in our lives, we're acutely aware our world needs to see that in Christians. Because not just in the UK, but in the Upper Valley, most people are not going to church on Sunday mornings. So, how will they know? Who Christ is? How will they know what a Christian is? Other than maybe some distorted pictures they might get from the media or from Twitter. They will know by seeing us, living our lives, dealing with trials and difficulties, but in accordance to God's word. But then you go down to verses 14 and 15 in this encouragement to Timothy to invest in learning and applying God's word. In verses 14 and 15, he says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And Paul reminds Timothy, Timothy, I know you've had some spiritual role models in your life. You've had your mother, Eunice. You've had your grandmother, Lois. You've had me. And I'm sure there are countless others Paul could list. But isn't that seeing the scriptures powerfully lived out before us, not just in word, but in example? That's another benefit of fellowship. Why do we come together? Not just so we can parade people in the past who were great models of faith, But we can look around us and and draw on the example and testimony of one another. But everything Paul has said so far to Timothy, all hinges and rests upon the nature of Scripture. What is it that we have in this book? It's not holy because it's just called that. And it's not a sacred writing just because we deem it to be a sacred writing. It is by its very nature, God's word directly from God spoken through the prophets and Jesus Christ and the apostles and preserved and given to us in its completed form. And you see this in verses 15 through 17. Notice he directs his attention. These are the holy scriptures. This book is unlike any other book in the world. Every religion has its sacred writings, but no sacred writing stands the test of history, of credibility, fact-checking, as scripture does. It is both the most truthful book in the world, and as we well know, the most hated and despised book in the world. It is the holy scriptures. But then you see in verse 16, this very important terminology that all scripture is God-breathed. It is from God, spoken directly to you and to me. And what an advantage for Timothy at this point, the New Testament isn't completed. So a lot of this phrasing refers primarily to the Old Testament that they had. But how much greater for us that we have the completed word of God. When we say all scripture, we're talking now about all 66 books that tell one completed story because if scripture is not fully inspired if it's not infallible in other words that it cannot lead us into error when correctly interpreted through the holy spirit and if it's not those things then it is not set apart from anything else it is the source of all truth all wisdom all learning no wonder Paul's telling Timothy, teach your people to be devoted to this word. And Paul's saying, Timothy, you're doing a good job. Continue in that. And I think for many of us, if we've known the Lord for a number of years, it's the continuing part that is the challenge. We we know the factual information. It's God's word. It's from God. But have we sometimes failed to continue to be learners of Scripture? And then you notice he gives fourfold purpose, four prepositional phrases relate to the use of Scripture. It is intended for teaching. Now, you can't break this list apart and pick which one you like and which one you don't like. I think we like the teaching part. Generally, we like learning new things. We go to a Bible study. We hear something like, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that before. So Scripture is intended to enlighten us, to to teach us more about God, who he is, his promises. But we mustn't forget that that's not the only facet of scripture. It's also intended to rebuke, to point out what is not right in our life. And we mustn't ever forget that. The purpose of a sermon, the purpose of any time centered around the word is not just encouragement. Sometimes it is to painfully say to you, this is wrong in your life. And you may not want to hear that. I think that's human nature. We we don't like to hear those kind of things. But then scripture is also intended not just to open up the wound and at times do spiritual surgery in us, is also to show us what is the path for correction, for restoration, for, for mending that, for moving forward in a godly way. So teaching, rebuking, correcting, and then training, educating us in how to live as Christians, how to live as followers of Christ. All of that is built on the fact that this is God-breathed. The authority of Scripture is self-authenticating. It's not authoritative because we declare it to be that way or some denomination does. But it's because it's God's word. God said it has all authority. When you get to the end of verse 17. Paul says, realize that the scriptures thoroughly equip us for every good work. Think of thoroughly in terms of completely. There, there's no situation, no circumstance in your life that you can say, yeah, but scripture does not tell me how to deal with this. Any situation. Every circumstance you might find yourself in, the scriptures give us principles that are intended to teach, rebuke, correct, or instruct us, and how to deal with that circumstance in a way that honors God. What an encouragement to Timothy. What a word for him to take back to a church facing the challenges of living in the last days and say, this is what you need to tell your people. This is what they need to know to go out and live for Christ. J.I. Packer, a well-known theologian in the past and writer, uh, was once asked, what would he do if he were Satan? And you might think that's a weird question, but he answered it very bluntly. He said, you know what? If I were Satan, the first strategy I'd have is to keep every Christian from reading the Bible and digging deeper in it. And his answer is spot on because if you understand what the Bible is, if our enemy can keep us from that, keep us from investing in it, keep us from being committed to knowing this one book and applying it, then he has succeeded. Let's pray. Our gracious God, forgive us for often giving lip service to what the scriptures are, but in our lives, not investing the time, the work through your Holy Spirit to truly grow in our understanding of it and to be living it out. May we be a people, a church committed to knowing this book and living it by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.